This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are prepared spiritually to study the Word. We need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is simply a matter of admitting or acknowledging in the privacy of silent prayer our sins to God the Father. At the instant we acknowledge our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and we resume our spiritual advance, ready to take in the Word of God. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that makes it possible for us to gather together this morning to study your word. It is your grace that has given us the freedoms that we have in this country. It is your will and your plan that has preserved and protected this nation. And we pray that you would continue to watch over us, to protect us, preserve us in this time of threats of terrorism, time of potential war with Iraq. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our president his advisors, our military leaders, and especially those men and women who are going to be engaged in combat in Iraq. We pray that you would watch over them and give them courage and wisdom to uh, execute their tasks as they should. Father, we pray for those on the home front, those who are, who are responsible for our security, those who are watching our borders, those who are uh, pursuing leads relative to uh, those who would do us harm relative to terrorists that are in our midst. Father, we pray that you would cause our enemies to fail, to make mistakes, to expose themselves, and we pray, Father, that you would, you would give us the, give our leaders and our the people in the field the ability to recognize these mistakes and to utilize them in order to uh, foil the plots of those who would do us harm. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that your word illuminates our hearts and minds to the truth of reality, to truth as you have revealed it to us. We thank you for your grace that has supplied us not only with salvation, but with the unique spiritual life of the church-age believer. Father, we pray now that as we study your word, that you would help us to understand the things that we study, that uh, we might have a greater appreciation for all that you have done for us in our salvation, and above all, that we might have a greater understanding and appreciation for our unique Savior. 
We pray this in His name. Amen. One announcement that I want to make that that, uh, uh, somebody mentioned something during the break, and I realize this has not been made uh, public. It's not that it hasn't hasn't been made public or we're trying to hide anything. It's just that I haven't announced it yet. One of the things that we did as per the first of the year because of the growth of the Tate ministry is that we have separated the Tate ministry as an autonomous organization. This last week we received the paperwork from the state of Connecticut so that there now exists Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. And that is the Tate ministry that uh, all the Tate ministry now operates under this autonomous organization. And once... Uh, probably by the end of this month, we will have all the paperwork submitted to the Internal Revenue Service for recognition as a nonprofit 501c3 organization. That official, probably will not become official for another eight or ten months, but the IRS makes uh, uh, all, rec- all such recognition retroactive for 15 months. So that means that uh, the uh, all contributions to Dean Bible Ministries will be uh, tax deductible. We've done this for a number of reasons, which I don't intend to go into now. But one of the benefits of this, and one of the results of this, was that uh, at the toward the end of last year, there were some uh, people who who are not local who have been very supportive of the Tate Ministry, very supportive of my ministry and who recognized the fact that I couldn't do it all myself and I needed some assistance. And so they made it financially possible for uh, Dean Bible Ministries to hire a, 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 an assistant for me and a secretary. So we hired Christine. We were able to hire Christine Camo as a full-time secretary, and she handles the bulletin and a number of other things. And a lot of technical stuff we're training her on uh, with uh, the website and other things of that nature, and I've got her doing a number of things to keep her busy with a full-time job. So that uh, that just moves us a little further down the road, and I think uh, Bryce is beginning to learn the value of having someone who can take a, a, some of the responsibility for a number of things off of his uh, shoulders as well, and so uh, that's a tremendous, tremendous benefit and supply that the Lord has uh, made possible for us uh, just recently, so we can be thankful for that. Last week, somebody gave me a little uh, blurb called, What a Difference a Hundred Years Can Make. Now, I read this to my wife, and she didn't believe it, but I've done enough studying history to where I think this is pretty accurate. A hundred years ago, or actually 101 years ago, in 1902, Theodore Roosevelt was serving his first term as U.S. President. The average life expectancy was 47. Just think of the difference a century makes. Only 14% of homes in the U.S. had a bathtub. It doesn't mean the rest of them had showers. (laughs) Only 8% of the homes had a telephone, and a three-minute call from New York to Denver cost $11. There were only 8,000 cars in the U.S., and 145 miles of paved roads. The speed limit in most cities was 10 miles per hour. And, of course, you'll never guess the first state to impose a speed limit. It wasn't Massachusetts, but it was close. It was Connecticut. I think they're still afraid of speed. 
Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee were each more heavily populated than California. <laughs> California had 1.4 million residents and was the 21st most populous state in the Union. The Eiffel Tower was the tallest structure in the world. The average wage in the U.S. was 17 cents an hour. The average U.S. worker earned between $200 and $400 a year. A dentist earned $2,500 a year, and a veterinarian earned between $1,500 and $4,000 per year. A mechanical engineer made about $5,000 a year. More than 95% of all births in the U.S. took place at home, and 90% of all U.S. physicians had no college education. Instead, they attended medical schools, which were condemned in the media and by the government as substandard. Sugar cost four cents a pound, eggs cost 14 cents a dozen, and coffee costs 15 cents a pound. Now think about that. The average wage was 17 cents an hour, and the eggs were 14 cents a dozen. That means the price of a dozen eggs was almost equivalent to an hourly wage. Now you think that the think about that. The the what's the the basic uh, Wage now, the, the, what do they call that? The minimum wage is, is what, 650 now? That'd be like paying $6 for a dozen eggs. So obviously not all things have increased at the same rate in terms of price. Uh, only one in 10 U.S. adults, no, one in 10 U.S. adults could not read or write. And only 6% had graduated from high, high school. Marijuana, heroin, and morphine were all sold over-the-counter in drugstores. Heroin was promoted for its ability to clear your complexion, give buoyancy to the mind. I think that's what they call <laughs> getting high. Um, regulate the stomach and bowels, and in fact, was a perfect guardian of health. And there were only 230 reported murders in the entire U.S. And 100 years ago, more Americans owned and carried guns than they do today. Okay, that's just a little glimpse into history. Let's open our Bibles to first or second John. Second John and we're in verse seven. Second John verse seven. Let's pick up the context, go back to verse four. John writes, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children, that is the members of the church that he's writing to. Walking by means of truth, that is the Word of God and Bible doctrine, that is the means, the information, the content that gives us the basis for our Christian life. They're walking by means of truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, that is this local church, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, impersonal love for other believers. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. So love is not defined in terms of emotion, in terms of feeling, in terms of sentiment. It is defined in terms of obedience to God. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk by means of it. That is, by means of this commandment to love one another. Now, the question should be, why? Because verse 7 begins in the New King James with four. This is... Not a good translation. The Greek begins with the particle uh, hati, which indicates because and introduces a causal statement. So the command is to love one another 
because, and we should walk in the commandments, because there are many deceivers that have gone out into the world. Now, this is a major theme that John has addressed already in 1 John, that there were those who were of us, who went out from us, but were not really of us. That is, they were associated at one time with the apostles. They were probably associated with the apostolic ministry in Jerusalem. At one time, they had their doctrine straight. They were believers, but now they have departed from the truth. They have adopted a false view of the person of Jesus Christ, and now they are leading people astray and creating problems in the churches. So he says, because many deceivers have gone out into the world, and then he defines these deceivers as as those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Now, last time we saw that that word acknowledge is the Greek word homologeo, which is the same word that is translated confess in 1 John 1, 9. Now, confession is one of those terms and concepts that have entered into Christian vocabulary And like most terms that have entered into Christian vocabulary, people use them without ever analyzing what they what they really mean. And I'm continuously amazed at how how people import all kinds of screwy ideas into into confession. Confession is not a an emotional term. It is not a term that means remorse. It is not a term that means repentance. It is uh, not a term that means to uh, beg forgiveness. It is a term that means to acknowledge, just as it is translated in this verse. It is to acknowledge or to admit something. It's a legal term which uh, ha- comes out of the courtroom indicating what a, what a prisoner will do if he admits to some crime. It, it does not mean he feels sorry for it. It doesn't mean he uh, recognizes how horrible it is. It just simply means he admits or acknowledges he did something. And when we confess our sins, we're not trying to impress God with our uh, how we feel about it. We're not trying to impress God with the fact that we'll never do it again because he knows you're going to do it another 5,000 times. So he's not impressed by our protestations otherwise. But God says simply admit it, and then because we are saved and we know that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross, that the penalty is paid simply by acknowledging or admitting our sin, uh, the Lord then forgives us completely and cleanses us from that sin. So this word relates to the idea of admitting or acknowledging something, and they do not admit that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And then John says, this is the deceiver, the Antichrist. This is a basic problem that John was addressing in the late first century that was infecting the teaching in the local church. Apparently this was a a heresy that was uh, spreading far and wide throughout the Roman Empire at this time because John spends so much time addressing this problem in 1 John, again in 2 John, and again in 3 John. So we have to understand that having a correct view of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is necessary to have fellowship with God. It is Fellowship with God is not simply a matter of confessing our sins and then not sinning. It is not simply a matter of being 
of, of being sinless or abiding in Christ because in verse 9 we see that whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So fellowship is not based simply on behavior or lack of sin. It is also based on having correct or correct Christology, that your understanding of the person and work of Christ, at least in, a, in its basic understanding, is correct. In other words, if you don't believe in the hypostatic union, if you don't believe in the full deity and true humanity of Jesus Christ, if you do not have a correct view of the atonement, then you cannot maintain fellowship with God because your doctrine is in error. So John makes it clear that fellowship isn't just a matter, maintaining fellowship isn't just a matter of, uh, of sin. It is a matter of doctrine. And wrong doctrine, just as sin, can break fellowship with God and you lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. Last time I said there are basically four areas of attack on Christology. And these are, first of all, the virgin birth. This is the first arena of assault, is on the virgin birth. The second is on the incarnation of Christ in reference to the hypostatic union. The second assault is on the area of the incarnation and the hypostatic union, that is, the person of Christ. And in the hypostatic union, we have a union of undiminished deity... and true humanity. And what we usually find is an assault on one or the other. Either there's a denial or a reduction of his deity, or there is a denial or reduction of his humanity. But this is an arena of assault on the person of Christ, and this was part of the problem that, that John was addressing. Third problem is the work of Christ in terms of the substitutionary atonement, an assault on the substitutionary atonement, which is his work of salvation on the cross. And then the fourth area of assault is on the resurrection. So starting this morning, I want to address each of these areas of assault. So we're going to begin with the virgin birth. And looking at that, and in doing that, I'm going to answer uh, four or five basic, cover this in terms of five basic questions. First question is why, or the first thing I'll address is why the Savior needed to be a full member of the human race. Why the Savior needed, needed to be a full member of the human race. We have... Nine points. Why the Savior needed to be a full member of the human race. First of all, to be a substitute. He had to be a substitute for mankind. Therefore, only a true member of the human race could die as a substitute for the human race. Like must substitute for like. This is one reason animal sacrifices could never do anything in relationship to sin. They were only training aids related to ritual observance that taught spiritual principles. Hebrews 10.4 states that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's true for a number of reasons, only one of which is that 
like must substitute for like. So the first reason the Savior had to be a member of the human race is to be a substitute. Second, to be a mediator. A mediator needs to be fully equal with both parties in conflict. Thus, the mediator needed to be fully equal with mankind. Jesus Christ is the one and only mediator between God and man. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, notice the emphasis on his humanity there, the man, Christ Jesus. As a mediator, he needed to be, the Savior needed to be fully equal with mankind. This also applies to his deity as well. Third, to fulfill the office of priest. To be our high priest, he's a king priest, 1 Peter 2.9. A priest must be a part of the group that he is representing. Therefore, the priest had to be fully human in order to represent man before God. Jesus Christ became true humanity in order to be our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 5. Fourth, to be Israel's Messiah. Jesus had to be, the Savior had to be a man to fulfill the requirements for Israel's Messiah, Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 7. To be Israel's Messiah, Isaiah 53, 3 through 7. Furthermore, the Savior needed to be a full member of the human race to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. He was to be a descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22:18. He was going to be from the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah, Genesis 49, 9, and 10. And he would be from the root of Jesse, Isaiah 11:1. 1. So he had to be fully human, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy as a descendant of Abraham, Genesis 22:18, from the tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah, Genesis 49:9 and 10, from the root of Jesse, Isaiah 11:1, 1, Jesse being the father of David. Which takes us to the sixth point: to fulfill God's covenant with David, he had to be in the physical line of David. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, and Psalm 89, 20 to 37. He had to be a, a human being to fulfill the Davidic covenant and the promise of an eternal uh, dynasty descendant from David. Seventh, to fulfill the office of prophet. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. So he had to fulfill, be a human being to fulfill the office of prophet. Eighth, he had, to, he had to be fully human in order to pioneer the spiritual life of the church-age believer based on the filling of God the Holy Spirit. In hypostatic union, Jesus is fully God. He is also true humanity. Now, Jesus could have used his divine power, his divine attributes, to solve problems that he faced in his humanity. He did not. He relied upon the Holy Spirit because he was setting the precedent for the church age, that in the church age, believers live their spiritual life based on the empowering ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, which is called the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. Jesus Christ pioneered that. Now, that does not mean that Jesus did not do things from his 
deity. Jesus did a number of things to show that he was God and from his deity, but they weren't related to solving problems, and they weren't related to living his spiritual life. They were related to demonstrating who he was as the Son of God to back up his claim to be the Son of God. And we see glimpses of his deity in places. For example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Roman soldiers came to lay their hands on him, there was this flash of his power, and the guards were thrown back. You see another example of him functioning in his deity at the wedding of Cana when he changed the water into wine. He was demonstrating that he has the power of creation, therefore that he was fully God. But at other times, many other times, Jesus performed miracles, the scriptures make clear, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is demonstrating there and at other times in his ministry that he is relying upon God the Holy Spirit to solve problems. He's not relying upon his, his deity or his divine attributes. It's important to make those decisions. If you end up saying that Jesus does everything from in his humanity, dependent on the Holy Spirit, then you are subtly denying the deity of Christ because you are removing all of these other clear indications of Scripture. If he didn't do anything in his deity, there is no proof. There is no evidence anywhere in his life that he was fully God. And he does certain things to demonstrate and to back up his claim to be the Son of God. Other miracles back up the fact that he is truly human because he does them not in his own power but in the power of the Holy Spirit. But he pioneers the spiritual life of the church age believer. The spiritual life in this age is based on what Jesus Christ did in living his spiritual life. It's not based on the spiritual life of the age of Israel, the Mosaic law, or the ritual observance in the temple. That is completely distinct, and Jesus Christ set a new precedent, a new pattern, during the period of the incarnation when he was uh, on the earth. And then ninth, we see that Old Testament prophecies and types A type is an example, a foreshadowing of something that would come. Old Testament prophecies and types teach his humanity. For example, first of all, first example, in the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, it was made from acacia wood that was covered with gold. The acacia wood represents the humanity of Christ. The gold represents the deity of Christ. So the construction of the ark represents the humanity and deity, and it therefore represents the hypostatic union. Second example, Melchizedek, the king-priest of Salem, is a type or shadow image of Christ as king-priest. Therefore, to fulfill the type, he must be truly human. Melchizedek, the king-priest of Salem, is a type or shadow image of Christ as our royal high-priest or king-priest. Genesis 14:18, Psalm 110, verse 4, compared with Hebrews 6:20 and 7:23. Let me give those references to you again. Genesis 14:18, Psalm 110:4, compared with Hebrews 6:20 and 7:23. Third example: Moses. Moses was a type of Christ as deliverer and prophet. Exodus 2:2. 2, 2. 
Moses is a type of Christ, is deliverer and prophet. And then the fourth example is in Isaiah 7:14, the promised Messiah is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, and that indicates his humanity, that God would be with us as human. So that addresses the first issue, is why the Savior needed to be a full member of the human race. The Savior needed to be true humanity. Well, let's ask, answer the second question. Why must the Savior be fully God? Why must the Savior be undiminished deity? Why must he be fully God? Well, first reason is a sort of a process of elimination. No human being could be qualified to go to the cross because every human being would be a sinner. Every human being would be born with a sin nature. So no human being alone could satisfy the requirements to go to the cross and pay the sin penalty for the human race. No angel could substitute for the human race because, once again, you have the principle of like must substitute for like, and angels could not substitute for humanity. Third, no other creature could serve the role because the, the, of the nature and the principle of substitution. Therefore, the Creator Himself was the, must substitute. The Creator Himself is the only option for a Savior. Second reason that the Savior must be fully God is only one with perfect righteousness could qualify. This would eliminate all other creatures needed absolutely perfect righteousness and because he would be the source for the imputation of righteousness. So he had to have a righteousness that could be imputed to others in the race. That relates both to his humanity and his deity. Third, only deity could provide a substitute that would have infinite value. If the Savior was to die for all mankind, then that he had to have a pay a penalty that would have value for more than one. In fact, a value that would pay a, a value that could pay the penalty for all mankind. So the Savior, under the first question, we demonstrated the Savior had to be a full member of the human race. Under the second question, we demonstrate that the Savior had to be fully God. So that brings us to the third question. If the Savior must be true humanity, then why couldn't he enter history by two human parents? Why couldn't the Savior be born with just two human parents? I'm setting up a very tight logical case for some conclusions we'll draw, uh, and I'll make, the, make some of that clear when we get there. If the Savior must be true humanity, why couldn't he enter history by simply two human parents? Well, first of all, this would not distinguish him in any way from any other member of the human race. He would not be distinguished from any other member of the human race. Nothing would set him apart. Nothing would identify him as being unique. Second, if he is born by two human parents... He would still inherit a sin nature from his parents like everyone else and thus would not be qualified to go to the cross. So it, two things. If he's born by two human parents in the normal biological manner, then he would not be distinguished 
by, from any other member of the human race, and he would still inherit a sin nature from his parents like everyone else, and thus would not be qualified to go to the cross. Therefore, if the Savior must be fully God and fully man, and if the birth could not be through two human parents, then his entry must be through a unique birth. If he must be fully God and fully man, and if that can't be accomplished through two human parents, then it must be accomplished through a unique birth. We must remember, and when we get into this discussion on the virgin birth, that is actually the virgin conception, that we must keep a distinction between the concept of the virgin birth or virgin conception and the incarnation. The virgin conception is merely the means to bring about the end, which is the incarnation. The incarnation itself includes much more than the birth of the Savior. It involves the entire principle of the hypostatic union and its purposes and outworking. So incarnation has to do with the hypostatic union and the consequences of it, whereas the virgin conception and birth it merely focuses on the means to the end. So that brings us to the fourth question. Why the virgin birth? Why the virgin birth? Some will say that the purpose of the virgin birth is simply to provide a sign. Isaiah 14 says that there would be a sign a virgin would conceive. So some would say that the virgin birth is simply a miraculous birth to signify that God is doing something unique. But is this restricted to, to simply that purpose? Is the virgin birth simply something that provides a miraculous note to announce the arrival of the Savior? It's certainly true that that may be the only reason but that seems unlikely simply because the virgin birth is taught in only two is clearly taught in only two New Testament passages, Luke 1 and Matthew 1. The New Testament does not make a major issue out of the virgin birth. I mean, not that it's not important, not that it's not significant, but it is not something like the substitutionary atonement of Christ or the incarnation or hypostatic union that you find um, scattered throughout multiple books of the of the New Testament. You find it clearly referenced in only two passages, and that's Luke 1 and Matthew 1. Historically, it wasn't known to anyone other than Mary and Joseph and possibly Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. This is not something that was on the Jerry Springer show. This is not something that... Uh, that they had a congressional investigation about. When, uh, when Mary shows up pregnant, they don't bring in a, a, a religious commission from the Pharisees to see and prove that she was indeed a virgin and therefore qualified under Isaiah 14. The point is that while it is a sign and it is a miracle, it was a very quiet sign at the time and a very much overlooked miracle. Nobody knew about this except a very small number of people. Now, that would indicate to me that in terms of its, of its function as a sign, that it was relatively limited. Now, I don't mean to, to uh, denigrate the importance of this as a sign. 
But I'm just saying this is not a sign like other signs, such as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This was a sign for a rebellious generation that he would be in the grave three days and three nights like, like, a, like Jonah. It was a sign of Jonah. There were other things that, that Jesus did in his ministry that were public, that were observed by hundreds if not thousands of people that signified that he was who he claimed to be. When he came as a, as a Savior, he fulfilled the messianic prophecies that he would give sight to the blind, that he would heal the lame, and that he would heal the lepers. These were done before hundreds if not thousands of people on diff- many different occasions and were public signs that were well known. But the virgin conception and the virgin birth were not observed and not known by very many people. So it seems to me that its function as a sign is not as broad-based as many of the other signs. Therefore, we must address the fact that it might have had an additional and more significant purpose than simply being a sign. Now, the reason I'm stressing this is because 95% of the people that you read on the virgin birth and who teach on the virgin birth will limit its significance to that, that it is simply a sign and a miracle, and they end it there. And all I am saying is while all of that is true, it's much more than that. It's, it, it's not to be limited to that. There is, it not only has a function as a sign, but it has a a real significance in terms of producing the God-man who is impeccable. So let's look at this question, why the virgin birth? Well, first of all, the Savior couldn't just appear on the scene. I mean, he couldn't, couldn't just materialize out of nowhere. I mean, he, we know he couldn't be born from two parents, so uh, one option would be that, that he would just appear on the scene. But that wouldn't work because... He wouldn't be true humanity. He had to be true and genuine humanity. Second option we might come up with, or that has been suggested in church history, that has been clearly rejected as heresy, is the idea that deity was added after birth. This was a position in the early church that was known as adoptionism. It's not too different from uh, modern position of Jehovah's Witnesses. Adoptionism. And under the concept of adoptionism, the idea was that Jesus is born of Mary and Joseph, two human parents, and he's a human being, and because of his piety, because of his love for God, he, he, uh, he never sinned. Of course, that denies the concept of Adam's original sin and inherited sin. But their view is that Jesus is born and he just has a greater God consciousness than anyone else. And so God then chooses him to be the Savior. And this takes place at the point of of John's baptism. So when he's baptized by John the Baptist, when the Holy Spirit hovers over him as a dove and God the Father announces him from heaven as as my uh, beloved son, it's at that point that deity is uh, given to Jesus. And so then he goes his three years of ministry, three plus years of ministry, and goes to the cross and, and dies. This was called adoptionism because it's at the point of the baptism by John the Baptist that the Father adopts Jesus as his son. And that is clearly rejected as heresy, and it doesn't solve the problem because 
Once again, if he is born from two human parents, then he would inherit a sin nature. And remember, we sin because we are sinners. We, do, we are not sinners because we sin. I know it's early in the morning. I see those blank looks. We sin because we're sinners. You're born with a sin nature, and because you have a corrupt nature, you are totally depraved, you sin. You are not a sinner because you commit sin. See, that phrase, if you say, I'm a sinner because uh, I I sinned, then what that means is that before you ever committed that first sin, you weren't a sinner, and you were as pure as the driven snow, and you were as innocent as Adam was the day he came forth from the hand of God. That's the difference in those two phrases. You sin because you are a sinner. You are born with a sin nature and to which is imputed Adam's original sin. And from the instant you have physical life, you are under condemnation and corrupt and totally depraved. Now, if Jesus is born of two human parents, then he would still have a sin nature and therefore he wouldn't be qualified to go to the cross. So, first point, he couldn't just appear on the scene. Second point, deity couldn't simply be added after birth. Therefore, he must enter through a normal birth. But it couldn't be the result of copulation between two human parents. Because there has to be something that blocks the inheritance of the sin nature. That is the only solution. Fourth point in discussing this is that we must realize that there can be no doubt at all about Jesus' genuine and permanent humanity. See, and he is still in hypostatic union as a resurrected Lord sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He is still in in humanity, and that humanity has been added to his deity permanently. Now, the fifth point here simply recognizes the problem. And the problem is the inherited sin from Adam, Romans 5.12. This is the problem. How do we keep the sin nature from being passed on to Jesus? How is the sin nature prevented from being passed on to Jesus? Now, there are some that would say that sin is passed down through both the male and the female. Since both are sinners, the sin nature comes from both. Now, the problem with that is that if the sin nature comes through the woman, that even though you've excluded the male, you still would have a sin nature coming down from from a woman. Now, the way that people will usually handle that is they'll say, well, the Holy Spirit in his omnipotence simply removed the sin nature. Now, the problem that you have with that is that Mary generates an egg. This egg would be infected by this sin nature and corrupt. And if she passes on the sin nature, then that means at some point there is a sin corruption of that egg before Jesus is, before the Holy Spirit uh, miraculously fertilizes that egg, generates that that life. So you would have at some point corruption. So the point is the only real solution to this is that 
to recognize the principle of Scripture is that it is the male, it was Adam who was the head of the race, it was Adam's sin that resulted in the fall of the human race, not the woman's sin, and therefore it is through the male that the sin nature is passed down. So let's look at our fifth point, which is the mechanics of the virgin conception and birth. How did this take place? How did the virgin conception and birth take place? Point number one, Adam's original sin, when Adam sinned in the garden, when he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was the origination of the sin nature in the human race. Romans 5:12, and Adam all die. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God created the male and the female in his image. But in Genesis chapter 5, when we're given the genealogy, we're told that when Adam, after the fall, when Adam gave, uh, fathered his son, that son was not in the image of God, it's in the image of Adam. So that every descendant from that point on is born in the image of Adam that is fallen and a participant in Adam's original sin and under the corruption from that original sin. Point number two. Although both the man and the woman in the garden were equally guilty of sin, the woman's sin wasn't the issue. She wasn't the designated head of the human race. Now, when, when the woman sinned, she, was, she became spiritually dead. She came under the penalty and condemnation of sin. But her sin was not the issue. The issue was the sin of Adam as the representative head or federal head of the human race. The woman's sin was due to her deception, 1 Timothy 2.14, and his sin was, was a sin of full cognizance. He was fully aware of what he was doing. Therefore, his sin is the determinative and the crucial sin. The result, therefore, is that while both the man and the woman have a sin nature, only the male transmits the, the sin nature through the fertilization of the female ovum. Third, the sin nature clearly has a physical dimension as expressed in the Scripture. This is communicated through the use of terms such as flesh in Romans 8, 3, and 4, plus numerous other passages like Galatians 5, 16 and following, and Ephesians 4 and many other passages. The sin nature is described as the flesh and the body of sin in Romans 6, 6. Therefore, all the cells in our body are contaminated by the sin nature. It is a complete orientation of our physical body. It impacts our physical body and orients us and impels us toward the direction of rebellion against God. Now, we are born with this sin nature, this capacity for evil, this orientation towards rebelliousness that infects every single cell in our body. And it is to that sin nature that God the Father imputes Adam's original sin at the instant of our birth. So that we, are not, we not only have a sin nature, which means that we are born corrupt, but 
when, with the imputation of Adam's original sin, we are just as guilty of Adam's sin as he is, and we are partakers of spiritual death. Point number four. In physical procreation, the sin nature is then passed down through the male. And at birth, the guilt of Adam's original sin is imputed to that sin nature. So at through procreation, the sin nature is passed down through the male. At procreation, you have the, an, an ovum contributed by the female and then sperm contributed by the male. Now, the, the, um, this goes into point five. The sperm has 23 chromosomes that come from the male. Now, when the egg is first generated, it has 46 chromosomes. Then, through a process known as meiosis, the egg throws off 23, 23 of these chromosomes in what are called polar bodies. They're just, uh, the egg just divests itself of these cells. So, these polar bodies are removed. And that leaves 23 chromosomes that have been purified through this process of meiosis. So what happens in the virgin birth is God the Holy Spirit miraculously fertilizes these 23 chromosomes. Now this is a difficult thing to understand. It's not in the sense... Almost every writer on the subject emphasizes this, no matter what else they may say on the virgin birth. This is not an act of God the Holy Spirit having sex with Mary. That's not the idea. This is a miraculous generation uh, that would only be analogous to the creation of human life. So God the Holy Spirit is going to create from these purified 23 chromosomes a new and unique life, that is fully human, but does not inherit anything from Adam. So the Holy Spirit miraculously would supply the other 23 chromosomes necessary for life to begin, and the result is the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, who is minus a sin nature. Because he is born without a sin nature, there is no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin, and he is born with perfect righteousness in his humanity, just as, Jesus, just as Adam was originally created with perfect righteousness. Therefore, Jesus is called the second Adam. He is born sinless just as Adam was created sinless. So the fifth point is through meiosis and polar body, the 23 chromosomes are thrown off by the female, leaving 23 uncontaminated chromosomes prior to uh, fertilization. Now since, point number six, since only the male 23 chromosomes carry the sin nature, not the females, that means that if the woman has a virgin pregnancy, if her ovum is fertilized apart from Male, human male involvement, then the progeny would be born minus a sin nature. And this is the case 
of how the humanity of Jesus Christ was generated. The result is known as the hypostatic union. So let's take a look at the next doctrine we have to address, which is the hypostatic union, the basis for understanding the incarnation. Now the term incarnation literally means to be put into the flesh or into humanity. It is the deity becomes humanity. So the hypostatic union is related to the incarnation, that is the understanding the person of Jesus Christ. Here's a definition of the hypostatic union. The word hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which refers to something of a substantial nature, essence, actual being, or reality. A substantial nature, essence, actual being, or reality. In terms of a theological definition, the hypostatic union describes the union of two natures undiminished deity and true humanity. Just ignore the inserts in there. I'll come back and explain that in a minute. Undiminished deity and true humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Now, the names that I have in there are names related to uh, early church fathers who attempted to express this concept of the hypostatic union, the relationship between the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is fully human. You have all kinds of passages that emphasize his humanity. You have all kinds of passages that emphasize his deity. However, the Bible does not give us a technical theological definition of the hypostatic union. Neither does it use the term hypostatic union anywhere in the Scriptures. But as people in the early church studied what the Scripture said, they wrestled with how do we put this into words? How do we express this concept that Jesus is fully human and fully God? What does this mean and what does it not mean? So in the early church, you had various controversies that took place uh, related to defining the, the nature of the person of Jesus Christ and his humanity and deity. They were not creating doctrine. They were not inventing doctrine. They were just simply seeking the best way to explain and articulate what the Bible revealed. And as they did that, they made some mistakes. So let's kind of, I find it always helpful to go through these early church heresies because sooner or later you're going to recognize your own personal misunderstanding of the hypostatic union. The first person to come along was a man by the name of Apollinarius. And he came along after the Nicene Creed had been written, which dealt with Arianism. Now the Arians were adoptionists. They, they didn't believe in an in eternal deity of Christ, but a deity that was secondary. Now, Apollinarius was very much opposed to Ar- the Arianism, so he sort of um, went to the other extreme in trying to explain 
the relationship of the humanity of Christ. He went so far, though, that he essentially denies the humanity of Christ. See, a human being is composed of three elements, a physical body, a human soul, and a human spirit. Now, when Apollinarius tried to explain the relationship of the humanity and deity of Christ, he said that, that man has a, that Christ had a human body, he had a divine soul, not a human soul, but a divine soul, and a partly human spirit. But this is not true humanity. See, true humanity is going to have a human body, a human soul, and a human spirit, plus deity. So Apollinarius is struggling with articulating this, and he ends up with, with a Christ who is not fully human. And so that was condemned at the Council of Constantinople, Constantinople in A.D. 381 as a denial of, of Jesus' humanity. Well, the next guy came along, and he took a stab at trying to explain the hypostatic union, and his name was Nestorius. And Nestorian, Nestorius had a tremendous impact. In fact, after, after they finally uh, articulated uh, the statement at, at, Cal, at, uh, at Chalcedon, he said, yeah, that's really what I was trying to say. But nevertheless, that's not what he said. And he did have an impact on, on many Christians in the, in the early church. And there were many Nestorian Christians, believers, who took the gospel to places like China in the second, third, I mean, in the um, fourth and fifth centuries? Nestorianism makes the problem of blending the deity and the humanity of Christ. He makes the the problem of blending the two. He dis- disliked the statement that was being used in the early church as Mary calling Mary the mother of God. He thought that uh, although that statement also affirmed his humanity, Nestorius didn't like the term because it led to the worship of Mary, and in that he was correct. But instead of acknowledging two distinct natures in one person, Nestorius denied that there was a real union between the divine and human natures in Christ, and he virtually holds the idea that there are two natures and two persons. So this is a divided Christ. Nestorianism is almost a, um, it's almost like you have this split personality. You have a, a divine nature and a divine person, and you have a human nature and a human person. So he, he separates things too much. And then the third person to take a stab at things is uh, Eutychius. Eutychius unites them so closely that they blend their attributes so that the humanity blends into the deity and the deity blends into the humanity. Now, let me back up again, and I'm going to read the definition to you. Hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity. See, true humanity rejects Apollinarius' view. In the one person of Jesus Christ, that would attack Nestorianism. See, it's emphasizing one person. These natures are inseparably united, that rejects Nestorianism, without loss or mixture of separate identity. That deals with the Eutychian problem where they're blended together. Without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, that's Eutychianism, and the union being personal and eternal, the idea of a union 
uh, rejects the Nestorian solution. So this is a standard definition that is based on the Chalcedonian Creed that was articulated in 451 A.D. We also teach that we apprehend this one and only Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, in two natures, without confusing the two natures, that was Eutychian, without transmuting one nature into the other, that was Eutychian, without dividing them into two separate categories, that was Nestorius, without contrasting them according to area or function, that was Nestorius. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person and in one essence. They are not divided or cut into two persons, but are together the one and only and only begotten Lagos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified, thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, thus the symbol of the fathers has handed down to us. This is the final articulation in the early church that defined the understanding of who Jesus Christ was in terms of his true humanity and undiminished deity. Now, next time when we come back, we'll continue with our study on the hypostatic union by going into the verses that teach the uh, hypostatic union and the undiminished deity and true humanity of Jesus Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning and study your word and come to a greater understanding and appreciation of our Savior and all that was involved in bringing about a Savior who could die on the cross as our substitute, one who was true humanity and undiminished deity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life, that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would recognize that there is only one sure and certain solution to our sin problem, and that is the person of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, that he was fully God and fully man, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, that they would recognize that the only thing they need to do to be saved is to trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Jesus paid the penalty in full on the cross. Therefore, there is nothing we can do to add to that salvation. There is nothing we can do to earn or deserve or merit that salvation. All we do is simply accept receive, trust, rely upon the work of Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied this morning. We would uh, come to a greater understanding of your grace and your marvelous provision of salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.